Welcome to this week's edition of An Hour of Your Life. My name is Kim. And I'm Steve. Hope you're staying well. Me too. I love that little reverb part at the end of the at the it, end of the, it's just <laughs> my, the song. It's just my string vibrating some weird I, way. But I like it. It's actually one of my favorite parts of the song. So How's it going, guys? Good? Y'all staying safe and sane? Hope you're all doing well. Hope no one's got the COVID. Uh, my voice ha- might cut in and out a little bit. It's be- It hasn't been too bad, but I ha- I'm i not sick sick. I have real bad allergies, and I've been coughing. Like, yeah. <laughs> I've been coughing a lot lately, so uh, I don't know. I, if I sound a little weird, that's why. Do I need to quarantine you someplace Please, for two weeks? no. Please, no. Yeah. We uh oh, I want to say a thank you on behalf of some local establishments. Uh we every Saturday morning we get breakfast from Stoney's Munchie Bar over on 5th Street and we had an hour wait this morning. If you are living in Dayton, Ohio, if you've not had limp biscuits and gravy, you are missing out. And the best chicken and waffles I've ever had ever in the history of the world. Um so thanks to those of you who are patrons of Stoney's because I mean, it's not great having to wait an hour for breakfast, but it is great that we had to wait an hour for breakfast because that means they're staying busy. And the same with Fifth Street Brew Pub. Well, we didn't really wait. We put in our order. Yeah, but they said it would be an hour. It's not like we sat there outside. Oh, no, no. But um, and we went to FSB this evening and got to see the lovely Tanya Brock. And uh, and so that was nice to get out and see some of the some of the faces that we've kind of missed a little bit. It's I don't want to say it's been an exciting week. It's. It's just been another week right now. (laughs) Not much to talk about. Yeah. All right. Are you ready to jump into uh, the show? Do you want to tell them what we're talking about, or do you just want to jump right into it? Go ahead. Jump into it. All right. All right. So I'm going to read um, an excerpt. The show is going to be a little bit different uh, this week, and we'll we'll talk about it. Well, you know, maybe we better. We're going to be talking about. Okay. We're going to be talking about the uh, the Dust Bowl. Yeah, we're kind and of a. It's kind of a continuation. You know, we went from um, the Spanish influenza in 1918 to prohibition, and now we're kind of continuing on into the 30s with the Dust Bowl. Um, maybe and, a spoiler alert. Maybe next week we may be talking about the Depression. Maybe. Maybe. Uh, we haven't really decided yet. Hint. Um. But so the way that we're going to do this, uh, I found some a really interesting. There's lots of really interesting documentaries out there, and I found a really interesting account from PBS. Of um, it's kind of a transcript of one of the documentaries that they did. So I am Steve is going to be presenting the history and sort of the factual side of things, and I am going to be presenting uh, some actual an actual account of the Dust Bowl from a gentleman named J.R. Davidson. Uh, and so um, we're going to start out with some of Jr.'s words. Yeah. So, like she said, I'm going to be talking about just the factual part of it, and Kim's going to give that real life. Yeah. This is how it happened a, to me through my during, through my eyes. Yeah. He was yeah. A, a kid during the Dust Bowl. Kind of neat. So he says, "I think the land was good to these people because it provided them with a." I don't know whether I should say a good living. It wasn't a good living as we would judge it now, but it was an existence. They very seldom ever wanted for anything that they needed. They had food, they raised gardens, and they raised, down in the fields, they raised some, I, in this day, we'd think, how could they possibly have raised enough food on a little old patch like this? You know, they had 160 acres and probably only had half of that plowed up into a field. I know on my granddad's quarter, there was still a a big field. (laughs) I know on my granddad's quarter, there was about 90 acres that he'd plowed out with a plow behind a couple of horses and he walked along, you know, and down in the lower corner, why they planted a garden and they planted in corn and bean and they'd raise a few milk cow calves that they'd butcher. And of course they had milk from the cow and they'd have a few pigs. Everybody had an old sow or two and raised a batch of pigs once or twice a year. And so they needed really very little money. So if a fella had 80 acres and it made a good wheat crop, why well, he plowed up a little more and a little more. And about then, you know, we began to get machinery and we had tractors. And my uncle brought a tractor, you know, from the John Deere company at the time. And uh, he made a few payments on it. And then my dad ended up making the rest of them. But he could plow, you know, 30 acres a day. It wasn't like that old walk and plow when you could get five or six acres a day. 
So they kept breaking this country out, and they plowed up a lot of country that never should have been plowed up. They got the whole country plowed up nearly, and that's about the time it turned off terribly dry. Kim, you read really good. (laughs) Thanks. So most of us have heard about the Dust Bowl. Today, we're going to take a deep dive into the Dust Bowl. There's a lot of history. We're going to talk about the history. We're going to talk about why. We're going to talk about some stories that Kim is mostly going to relate to you. And then the effects of the Dust Bowl and how it just, I don't want to say still today, but it it carried up into the 50s, the effects of this Dust Bowl. Mm -hmm. Um, The Dust Bowl name was given for the Southern Plains region of the United States, which suffered a severe drought during the early, during the 1930s. It was also known as the Dirty 30s. It started in 1930 and lasted for about 10 years. And pretty much in the United States, this that stretched from Texas all the way up to Nebraska, and some will even say up into uh, Canada. So right up that the middle part of the United States. Now we don't want to confuse people. It rained during those thirty years, but it what not a lot. Like it was it wasn't or, during years, those ten, 10 years, years. I mean, during those ten years, like it did rain, but it was a historically very dry period. So during this 10 years, it was a very rough period of time. It killed a lot of people. It killed a lot of livestock. <laughs> livestock. <laughs> <laughs> I am having trouble with my words again tonight. Oh, goodness. So with no food for the cattle and the other livestock, many of these animals had to be put down because they were so emaciated that they just couldn't be sold. Yeah. And, you know, we watched this on a documentary where bulldozers actually went out and they had to dig trenches and the cattle were driven in the trenches and then they were shot. And just from what we saw, this one little boy, that stuck with him. It was really traumatic. Yeah, it it was. Because he understood too, even at a young age, that that was his family's livelihood, that he was literally watching his family's livelihood die um, with every shot that they took. Yeah, and just to see that many animals yeah. slaughtered like that in that in those type of conditions. But you know what? I see a lot of parallels today with the COVID, and we're not trying to compare because it's two different oh, yeah. types of natural disasters. But because of illnesses that are happening in, in um, some of our meat processing plants here in the United States, they're being forced to close. Farmers are now, I've seen reports, farmers are going to go out, are going out and they're having to put some of their livestock down because they can't get them to market. Um, but back during, you know, let's get back to the Dust Bowl. Crops failed across the entire region. This was compounded, too, because the United States and the world, I guess, we were all in the middle of the Great Depression at this time. So like many things, there are many skin layers of the onion skin that have to be peeled back to learn why and how this happened. There are several economic and agricultural issues that happened. There were federal land policies, changes in regional weather, farm economics, and other cultural factors that all contributed to the Dust Bowl. Like like we have learned about prohibition, this didn't start overnight. The Mm -hmm. whys didn't start overnight. It goes back a long way. The roots, actually, of the Dust Bowl go back to the Civil War. So during the Civil War, I think it was 1862, there were a series of federal land acts that were um, brought about to entice pioneers to move west by incentivizing farming in the Great Plains. The, yeah, I was right. The first was the Homestead Act of 1862. It provided settlers with 160 acres of public land. Next came the Kincaid Act of 1904, and then there was an act in 1909 called the Enlarged Homestead Act of 1909. These acts led to a huge movement of new, and I think this is key right here, inexperienced Mm -hmm. farmers moving to the Great Plains. Yeah, I think you're right. That inexperience is huge. We're going to find out. A lot of these late 19th century and early 20th century settlers live by superstition, and they, they, they actually believe that rain follows the plow. Immigrants, land speculators, politicians, and even some scientists at the time believed that homesteading and agriculture would permanently affect the climate of the semi-arid Great Plains of the United States, making it more conducive to farming. So, obviously, now we know this wasn't true. And a lot of this, 
we, we talk about the social aspects of this was linked to uh, manifest destiny. And that is the belief that, that Americans, we had the sacred duty to expand West, to open up the country. Yeah, and more from J.R. Davidson, he said, I think that most of those people thought, you know, this is just what we might say, hog heaven, it'll always be this way. They didn't worry about moisture. They didn't worry about erosion of any kind. I could take you out and show you fields now that the gullies washes down through them to where you can't farm it if you wanted to now. And they didn't think much about that. My dad didn't. They, during those dirty 30s, they came out with a lot of these different methods, contour farming, you know, different things, summer puddling. Uh, You pulled a little apparatus behind your plow that just dug holes and that'd catch the water. You know, you could have a two or three inch rain and it wouldn't run off. And then they came out with a lot of these methods, but most of these old timers wouldn't do it. You know, finally they got to where they'd pay them. You know, you can make a dollar an acre if you practice one of these methods. And that got a lot of them working on it because they needed that dollar an acre during those days. But earlier they just plowed this country up without thought as to what their consequences were going to be. You know, if you can get them to really sit down and think about it, most of them were pretty sensible but they sure broke up a lot of this country that never should have been plowed up. It just wasn't farmland. It should have been grassland. Now, while we were preparing, when I say we, uh, as people were thinking about this, there were some wet years during this time or pre-Dust Bowl that led to a big misunderstanding of the region's ecology because it was believed to be wet because there there had been some Mm -hmm. wet years. But this was the big mistake, this misunderstanding led to intensive cultivation and farming of marginal lands that just couldn't be irrigated because they believed that, you know, they could plant and there would be water and they could raise their crops. But there were also more complications. Wheat prices rose in the 1910s and the 1920s because of the demand for wheat from Europe during World War I. Russia had been a large wheat producer, but the Russian wheat harvest had been affected because of the Reven, the Russian Revolution. So all these things are tied. It, it's just like right now, if you, like I said, when you peel the skin of the onion back, yeah. if you just see something on the surface, when you really get into it, there's a lot of things that, that led up to this and caused this. So all these factors caused farmers to plow up millions of acres of native grassland to plant wheat, corn, and other row crops. The Great Depression caused wheat prices to crash. So again, just more factors leading into this. Farmers farmed up even more grassland in an attempt to harvest more wheat just to break even. So you got all this loose soil that's not, it's nothing's holding it down. Right. So right from the get-go. Yeah. So in 1931, crops begin to fail at the beginning of the drought. So again, there had been wet years, so mm-hmm. no one no one anticipated this. And experienced farmers, they didn't know how to rotate crops and how to do all this stuff. That will come about in the 1930s. We'll learn about that. So as they they plowed up the land, this exposed the bare, overplowed farmland even more. Without native, deep-rooted prairie grasses to hold the soil in place, it began to blow away. The soil eroded which led to massive dust storms and more economic devastation and health issues. All of this, the dust storms in in this panhandle area, were caused mostly by the fact that so many people had broken out so much land that they really couldn't take care of all of it. They would get a hard rain, and that country would go to blowing, and they just couldn't get over it, couldn't work it in time to keep it from piling up on the fence rows. And this just kept getting a little worse and a little worse, and then we had this terribly dry year. It was in the early 30s, and the first thing we knew, back in the northwest, we could see this low cloud bank, it looked like. You could see it all the way across, and we watched that thing, and it got closer and seemed to kind of grow, you know? It was getting closer. The ends of it would seem to sweep around, and you felt like, you know, you were surrounded, Finally, it just closed in on you, shut off all light. You couldn't see a thing. The first one or two that happened, people thought the end of the world had come. Scared them to death. Travelers coming down the highway didn't know what to do. They were just hysterical. I don't know how many storms we had during what they called the Dust Bowl days, but a lot of them. I remember our home, it just nearly covered it up. So if you've ever driven through this part of the country, there are tumbleweeds. 
and the, as the tumbleweeds would blow, they would roll up to fences, and they would get caught on the barbed wire on the fences. Mm-hmm. And then as these huge sta- sandstorms would come, it would plow it or not plow it up, but oh, it, yeah. would, it would cover it up. And then that was hard for the livestock because the livestock could just walk over top of this. Yeah, it was. Like snow fences we see here in yeah, Ohio it, in the east part of the. It was like sand dunes. Yeah. Like you you mentioned the sand, and that was one thing that I didn't realize, that there there is um, a difference in the ground out in this part of the country. It's not just dirt. Like a lot, a lot of it was, but there were more sandstorms than dust storms per se. Uh, and we heard a lot of accounts of people that would get caught outside during a sandstorm, which happened, I think one account they said they had one like every day for three months or something like that. And they would get stuck outside in these sandstorms and that sand would just like pelt at you. And imagine chase, taking sandpaper to your legs. And and that's what it was like for, for the people out there. And, you know, dirt is one thing, but sand, it's so fine that it gets in all of the cracks and crevices and you just can't get it cleaned up. Yeah, and... Sandstorms, I've been in a couple sandstorms um, at Fort Irwin, California, at the National Training Center out there. We would get sandstorms, not often, but, you know, they would come. And you just can't see your hand in front of your face, and you can't drive. Yeah, you just basically all traffic has to stop. And I remember one time I was in a Jeep at the time, and a sandstorm came up. So I just took a poncho, and I got out of the Jeep. And I went over and I leaned up against one of the tires and the sandstorm lasted an hour, hour and a half. And by the time it was done, my body, I was covered up to my waist in sand. And that was at Fort Irwin. And then over in uh, Saudi Arabia and Iraq, it it wasn't uncommon to have sandstorms come up. And they would just, I think they called them shamals or something like that. And it seemed like they'd happen like every four or five days. Yeah. And you just couldn't see. And... What these people during the Dust Bowl had to do was like we we've I've read accounts of in the winter there would be snowstorms and you know you'd have to get out and you still have to feed the animals whether it's a sandstorm or a snowstorm heat or rain or whatever and they would tie ropes like oh yeah the, I've heard about this yeah ropes from their house to the door out to the barn so they could find their way because of the it's, they wouldn't be able to see it's beautiful and they were having to do this. With the sandstorm, oh, because yeah. they would have to follow these ropes to get out there. It's beautiful country, but it is, um, it's interesting because like it's kind of a rolling flatland, if that makes sense. There's there's small rolling hills, but that there's um, wind constantly. Like I've only been out to Oklahoma once, and that was that was what struck me the most is that there's a constant wind, whether it just be a gentle breeze or, like, wind-wind. But there's constant breeze no. and, and wind all the time. We call it big sky country. Yeah. you just see horizon. It's yeah. almost like, to me, it's like looking over the ocean because you just see horizon to horizon. Yeah. Yeah. But by 1934, an estimated 35 million acres of land was useless for farming, because of these severe dust storms, they were often called black blizzards. They they just swept the Great Plains. Some of these dust storms carried topsoil as far east as Washington, D.C., New York City. And there's even been reports that ships 200, 300 miles out in the Atlantic Ocean received dust from, from these dust storms. I cannot even imagine. Yeah. That, like, just the idea of... I, I don't know. Like, I can't even picture this in my head. Just dirt from nowhere. Like, the fa- and I wonder, too, how much it irritated the farmers in the Midwest that were proper farm. Like, I don't mean to, like, say it like that, but proper farmers that had been doing it for generations and new farming techniques and stuff. They're being affected by these novice farmers that don't know what they're doing. And I'm sure their crops were Well, it was different soil affected. conditions, too, as you moved east, like here. We don't. We wouldn't have that problem, even though our farmers do rotate crops for, I think, for nutrient reasons. Yeah, but, but what I'm saying is, though, that, we, that we've got like 30, 40, where we live, we have 30, 40 feet of topsoil. It's not going to blow away. Yeah, but that dust coming from out from Oklahoma, like, 
I don't know. I feel like that, that would probably irritate me it as a probably irritate a lot of people as a Midwestern farmer. Like, what are you doing? Yeah. On May 9th, 1934, a strong two day dust storm removed just massive amounts of the Great Plains topsoil. And one of the worst such storms of the Dust Bowl, the dust clouds blew all the way to Chicago where they deposited an estimated 12 million pounds of dust. That That's is a lot of dust. 12 million pounds of dust. Ugh. Yeah. So for our listeners overseas, that's 5,500 tons. Ugh. Yeah. Two days later, that same storm kept rolling, and it reached, as we said earlier, Cleveland, Buffalo, Boston, New York City, and Washington, D.C. That is insane. The cloud, 12 million pounds of dust. These clouds would just darken the sky, and you the reports were you couldn't even see your hand in front of your face. And it would darken them for days at a time. I mean, that's like living in Alaska <laughs> when it gets that dark. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> yeah, and it, it the the city streets, the sidewalks would get so covered with dust that people had to go out and they had to shovel it like with show snow shovels oh my to get out. I mean, we saw in that documentary mm-hmm. people they couldn't get out the front door of their house. Oh, they had yeah. to dig themselves out. Yeah. Dust worked its way through the cracks of even the best sealed houses, leaving a coating on your food, on the skin. And on your furniture. Yeah, you never could get clean. Some people even um, developed a disease. They called it dust pneumonia. They would experience chest pains and difficulty breathing. It's unclear exactly how many people may have died from this condition. But estimates of how many people died of dust pneumonia range from uh, hundreds to several thousand people. I was pretty small when I got the dust pneumonia. I don't remember exactly getting sick, but I do remember part of my stay in the hospital. They took me to Amarillo. That was the closest good hospital, and I guess I was sicker than I ever realized because I got uh, delirious. I was out of my head. I can see to this day those merry-go-round horses coming out of the ceiling, you know? They just, like this, just like a merry-go-horse round goes, round horse goes. And I'd say, Mom... She was always there by my bed, seemed like. And I'd say, Mom, those horses Sound, are going to hit you. Sounds like he should have been saying, Ma. <laughs> Maybe so. He'd say, uh, Mom, those horses are going to hit you. I said, you better move your head. And she'd move her head over and say, Boy, that one liked to got you. And I don't really know how sick I was, but I was pretty sick. I think she thought a time or two I wasn't going to make it. Uh, but that's about all I can remember about it. But I can still see those horses. They were bright colored, red, green, gold, just like on a merry-go-round. I I really, really saw them. And you couldn't have convinced me they weren't real. And I don't know how long this went on, but it was a, a good while there. One evening, they gave me sponge baths, I think, to keep my fever down. I don't remember feeling hot, but I'm sure that I was. And they'd sponge me off every little bit there. I don't know, for a day or two. And I guess they did what I needed. I got over it. All I really had was bronchial pneumonia. You know, that that dust storm I was talking about on May 9th, and and we we talked about moving. On May 11th, it had traveled that 2,000 miles, and they said that it blotted out. You couldn't see the Statue of Liberty. Holy cow. And you couldn't even see the U.S. Capitol building. So that is how massive... And powerful this storm was. I wonder, so aside from like the the dust pneumonia, living in these constant conditions for 10 years, you know, you hear about miners getting black lung. I wonder what the lungs of uh, people that lived in, during the 30s in the Dust Bowl, what did they, what did they look like? I mean, because you know, they had to, at least miners get to come out of the mines. They never got away from the dust. So, for a coal miner, it's called pneumoconiosis. Okay. Yeah. So, but... (laughs) (laughs) A.K.A. black lung. Black lung. So, this stuff, I imagine it does get down in your lungs, and Mm -hmm. I imagine it was not the healthiest thing. I bet if we researched a little bit more that people of that age... I I, I wonder if we researched if they had more lung conditions and lung issues. I mean, you would think they'd have to. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I, I didn't see it, but we didn't. But we weren't again, specifically looking for that. We weren't specifically looking for that, and they may not have really thought to document it 
so much. Um, you know what I mean? Like it's still the thirties, early medicine. This is when they were doing lobotomies on people and like early, I don't want to say early days of medicine, but it's not where we are that, now. I think there's some people right now that need some lobotomies going on. Moving on. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> the worst dust storm occurred on April 14th, 1935. News reports called this event Black Sunday. It was a wall of blowing sand and dust that started in the Oklahoma panhandle and spread east. As many as 3 million tons of topsoil are estimated to have been blown off the Great Plains during Black Sunday. An Associated Press news reporter, a guy named Edward Stanley, came up with the term the Dust Bowl because of Black Sunday, and that's how we have the term today, the Dust Bowl. When those dirt storms would blow, many times they'd blow all night. And when you'd wake up the next morning, it would be clear and pretty. And we could always tell when my dad got up early on the morning after a dirt storm. And the first thing he would do would be to go to the stove and build a fire. Had wood-burning stoves. And you could always tell that because you could see in the, in the dust on the floor his footprints where he'd walk to the stove. But there would not be a toe showing. He could turn his shoes up and they wouldn't touch because he'd walk to the, we always kidded him about he might freeze his feet, but he sure wouldn't freeze those toes because they never did touch that cold floor. He'd be over there and he'd always have him a little pot of kerosene with some kindling in it to build a fire and he'd build that fire and go back to bed for a little bit while the house warmed up. And of course the rest of us wouldn't never get out till it warmed up. But this this was a joke all our lives with him, too, about the fact that he could turn his toes right straight up. I never, ever could turn mine up, hardly at all. If I walked across the floor, every toe print would have shown. So <laughs> that just talks about, I mean, it goes back to what you were saying earlier about everything was just coated with dust. So, you know, I mean, I, I sweep and mop the floors every night. Uh, we have hardwood floors in our kitchen, and because we have three dogs in the house, like, it, they get dirty. And so I sweep and mop them every night. And I would imagine that, you know, this it, it women wanted to keep their houses clean, just like now. And I'm sure the men appreciated it. I'm sure. So imagine, like, cleaning. If I cleaned the floor the night before, and then you come in, and the next day you can see your footprints across the floor in the dust that I had cleaned up the night before. How irritated yeah, and would, would I be? Yeah, and multiply like every day, yeah. yeah, of just all that dust. Yeah. I mean, it would have to just work on you after a while. Yeah. I mean, like right now, I mean, here we are, we, we've been pretty much on lockdown for what a month now, yeah, roughly. I mean, and we're doing okay, yeah, we're and not doing most bad. of our friends are doing okay, but I don't want to say it's irritating, but it would be nice to go out. It's just that same, I guess, it's just the same routine that we see. Day after day after day. What's yeah. that one meme? It's like today is uh, April, April 974th or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Something like that. So I could imagine that if you had to go out and face the dust. Yeah. You never constantly. feel clean. Yeah. People said, you know, we, we heard accounts of people would, you know, they would sw- like get some water and they would swish water around in their mouth and it just didn't even do anything. You just swish it around, spit it out, and five minutes later your mouth is lined with dust again. Yeah, that would be not a good feeling. If I brush my teeth, I want my teeth feeling clean when I'm done. Yeah, and I mean, a lot of these people too, it's not like you have an electric dryer to once you wash your clothes, they, you know, they use washboards. And probably lye soap, and uh, and then you would that they made from rendering their hogs, right? And then you would hang your clothes up on a line. How are you going to hang your clothes up on a line in the dust bowl after you just washed them? I mean, it's let's go back and kind of relate to what's going on today. There are so many things that if you just look at it, okay, there's a coronavirus. But let's get really deep here. We have to wash our hands. And right. that's good. But just like right now, in and I, we're familiar with the state of Ohio, when they're talking about reopening the state up of just all these things that have to be considered and thought about. I mean... It, things that I didn't even think about. We uh, were talking to Tanya at Fifth Street earlier, and she said something about when the restaurants reopen, um, everybody is, you know, they're going to have to put in large orders from their distributors for food. 
And I thought, well, gosh, if everybody reopens all at once, I don't think that there would be a food shortage, but all of these restaurants are going to be ordering massive quantities of food all at once. That's going to put a strain on the system. Yeah, and let's even peel that back. So that is what we're thinking, but you would think the food distributors are considering that right now. So maybe, you know, there's frozen food. I don't know, but that's just the example of Mm -hmm. when you start going back, there's no one person can plan and think of all this. You have to have your specialties, your, your people who are smart in each special area to really figure it out. And like right now, I'm sure that while this was happening... It, it, it hadn't happened before. Yeah. And so there was a lot of discovery learning, just like right now with COVID. Yeah, I mean, it would be great if when this happened, if the president and the governor and uh, the scientists all said, okay, this is exactly what we have to do. But there's been so many unknown factors, right. just like during the Dust Bowl, that we didn't know and people didn't know. And it wasn't, it, a lot of it is reactionary. I mean, sometimes you can plan for it, but a lot of time it's just reactionary and maybe the first plan wasn't the best plan. And then, you know, someone said, Hey, but if we do this, so yeah. Yeah. Like crop rotation, they, they didn't know about crop rotation. If they had, if these farmers, I, and I've heard this elsewhere that if these farmers had known about crop rotation and give their soil a break from year to year, that's why like in Ohio, Farmers will plant soybeans one year and corn the next year because they, you, you got to give the land a minute to rest. And that's what crop rotation is all about. And these novice farmers didn't know that. Yeah. If and, they the policies, had, and the policies from going back to the Civil War initiated all this. Yeah. I mean, if, how if they, complicated? If they had known that, there's a good chance that there, it probably still would have happened to some degree just because of the drought, but not to the degree that it did happen. Yeah. So Alabama had a song. It was, I think it was called uh, song of the South. And there's a line in there that said when wall street, when the, when wall street fell or when the market fell, we were so poor, we couldn't tell, but Mr. Roosevelt came along to save us all. Mm -hmm. Well, Franklin Delano Roosevelt was elected president. And as we learned last week, what did he do? New deal. He, well, what was last week's show? Prohibition. Okay. And what did he do, Kim? <laughs> Sorry. Um, he he gave them back their beer, and we saw signs. He ended prohibition. Yes. <laughs> yeah. There were there that's were signs. That's what I was getting at. Yes, that's what. Um, but it reminded me of one of the things that you're we really saw. on it tonight. I honey. know. Um, but we saw. Uh, you know, there's a picture of a sign that was on one of the fence posts that had like the dust had blown up onto the fence post where the cows could just walk over the barbed wire. And it said, Mr. Roosevelt, you gave us back beer. Now give us water. Yeah. So, so Franklin Roosevelt comes, he's faced with the great depression, the dust bowl and a lot of other things. And again, I mean, he was probably, probably a very smart man, but you don't get to be president by being dumb. Yeah, I'll and just put that out there, and he, uh, I'm, I'm sure he had a lot of smart people working on this, yeah. directly or indirectly, but he established a number of measures to help alleviate the plight of the poor and the displaced farmers. They addressed the environmental degradation that led to the Dust Bowl in the first place. Congress established the Soil Erosion Service and the Prairie State Forestry Project in 1935. That sounds the Civilian Conservation Corps. But a lot of this, the Soil it, Erosion it, Service. But it was it was all tied. So one, we're in the Depression. Yeah. So it, you know, the New Deal. Yeah. You know where we got we'll, we'll Social Security cards and everything like that. But it, it, it all tied together. It put people to work. Mm-hmm. restoring, doing yeah. all this stuff. It gave people jobs. And it kind of, again, we're still in the Great Depression right here. So these programs put the local farmers to work planting trees as windbreaks on farms all across the Great Plains. The Soil Erosion Service, now called the Natural Resource Conservation Service, or NRCS, was impl- implemented new farming techniques to combat the problem of soil erosion. And that's what we're talking about, rotating yeah. the crops and doing the things and like it's, that. it's a shame that nobody, well, I guess kind of what you said is no, they didn't know what they didn't know. But it's a shame that 
um, I guess veteran farmers didn't kind of train these novice farmers but, a little bit, but like you said, they didn't know what they didn't know. Nobody had expanded west, yeah, like but that, I'm so sure, they didn't know what yeah, the I'm land sure was you, like. I, I'm sure you couldn't have taken a farmer from Ohio, like right. I said, with yeah. 30, 40 feet of topsoil here. Yeah, that's true. Put that farmer out on the Great Plains, that's you true. know, maybe he would have recognized, hmm, not a lot of topsoil here, but, yeah. and what, you know, I, I'm convinced the world is full of a lot of smart people that can <laughs> figure things out. Us. And like right now, I'm hoping that there's some really smart scientists working on a vaccination for this COVID-19 stuff that I we're dealing with. Are. Yeah. So the social aspect of this, roughly 2.5 million people left the Dust Bowl states. This was the largest migration in American history. Oklahoma alone lost 440,000 people to migration. Many of them were poverty-stricken. They traveled west looking for work. If you think about these pictures we see from from the Great Depression, we Mm -hmm. see the hobos on the trains. We see these people, you know, packing up everything like the Beverly Hillbillies on their car and moving west to try to go to California. And you can look to start a new life. You can look at those pictures and you can just see the defeat. In their eyes. Like, it's they're so sad. Well, in 1930, between 1935 and 1940, roughly 250,000 Oklahoma migrants moved to California in search of a better life. That's a lot of people. Have have you ever read The Grapes of Wrath by by John Steinbeck? I should not admit this because I was a high school English teacher, but no, I have never never read The Grapes of Wrath. I have read The Grapes of Wrath, but The Grapes of Wrath is a story about. The Okies, where these people were nicknamed the Okies, mm-hmm. is a actually everyone who moved. I mean, there were so many people moving from Oklahoma, they called them Okies, Okies. but anyone who moved eventually got the title of Okie. But let's go The Grapes of Wrath. It's a story about this family that experienced all these hardships. And I don't want to give a spoiler alert, but on the way out, you know, they're all packed up in their truck and they got their poor old grandma sitting up on top. <laughs> And, and grandma died, and they just had to bury her alongside the yeah. road. But yeah. it, it was different times that were going on. And they moved out to, um, so they, they had that tough life in Oklahoma with this. They had to move. Okay, so I mean, right now, if you were to drive from Oklahoma to California, you, you could drive it in two days if you really wanted to, two long days. Yeah, but, but I mean, back did then, they have cars or did they have horses no they were in their trucks and like yeah that's what i'm saying i mean it was kind of cars that chain that i mean I'm well, they not, weren't air conditioned oh uh, yeah i mean it uh, you got to remember like they're these are impoverished people and they've and, already had to move once from wherever they were to oklahoma to do these land grants and stuff and now they're moving again after having admitted defeat in oklahoma they're moving Again, further west, maybe there's something better out there. Yeah, but I'm talking about how tough the conditions were because the roads aren't what they are today. So, you know, what I'm saying now is, you know, we we could drive from Oklahoma to California in two good days if we really wanted to. It took them weeks to be able to drive from Oklahoma in rough conditions, no food. Right. And, you know, just having to scavenge and take care of themselves, maybe pull into one of these roadside camps beg some food or maybe they packed up enough pork or whatever when they left i don't know it was tough times yeah for for the for the entire country so when these people got to california like i said they were called okies they faced discrimination they were given uh, menial labor and just really really poor wages once they reached california many of them lived in what we now would call a shanty towns and tents along just alongside irrigation ditches, and that's like on their way out. You know, there'd yeah. be little shanty towns along the way. Uh, crime was bad. You know, the theft and stuff like that. It, it was just it was not a good time to be alive. But you know what? Those kids ended up being what we call now the, the greatest, greatest generation. generation. Yeah. Um, yeah. It says. I remember one time we were, when we were so broke that when Christmas rolled around, we didn't have any Christmas at our house. I had had it explained to me that we'd have some money for long, a government check would come again, and then we'd have a little Christmas. 
So Christmas rolled by and vacation was over and we went back to school and the teacher says, well, let's all get up and tell what we got for Christmas. Everybody was telling about their toys and all this. And of course, I wasn't saying a word. Teacher says, well, JR, what did you get for Christmas? And I said, nothing. And she said, oh, come on, tell us what you got for Christmas. I said, ma'am, I didn't get anything. She never did believe me, I don't think. I think the the years went by, and I don't know whether she ever did believe me or not, but it was true. We didn't get any Christmas. About a month later, while we got a government check for about $200, boy, we were rich. We had Christmas. I didn't, didn't really feel bad about it at the time because I just had it explained to me that I think Dad had 50 cents left, and we just didn't didn't have any money to spend for Christmas, so it didn't bother me. But I did remember the incident at the school. I'll always remember that. And I remember my dad, who grew up during the Depression. I mean, he was young, but I remember him telling the stories that, like, for Christmas, they would get, like, an orange. Yeah. And and that's what they would get for their Christmas gift. But a lot of stuff came out. You know, we talked about, let's let's kind of move on to the arts right now. We talked about the Grapes of Wrath. Mm-hmm. There were books, but folk musician Woody Guthrie, um, semi-autobiographical <laughs> first album was called The Dust Bowl. It was ba- uh, Dust Bowl Ballads in 1940, told stories of economic hardship faced by the Okies in California. Guthrie was an Oklahoma native, left his home state with thousands of others, looking for work during the Dust Bowl. Woody Guthrie's amazing. I love Woody Guthrie so much, and there's a rags to riches story for you. Yeah. Another 125 million acres, that's about the size, three-quarters the size of Texas, was also at this time rapidly losing its topsoil too. The drought began to end, and rainfall started to return to the region by the end of 1939 bringing the Dust Bowl years to a close. So you think it's over. Just like right now, May 1st. Yeah, everything's going to be fine May 1st. Yeah, it's not. So the Dust Bowl years uh, of the the Dust Bowl itself ended at that point. It started to rain. Maybe some crops started getting planted again. But this didn't end the economic effects of what happened. The population declines in the worst-hit counties where the agricultural value of the land fell to recover continued well into the 1950s. So this is an entire generation of people who were affected by, essentially, drought. Like, their entire existence until adulthood, an entire generation was... Well, they had to live through it. Right, that's what I'm saying. Like, an entire generation was grossly affected by this by a drought essentially is yeah. what caused all of this problem. Yeah, well they they well no, we know it was much more than the drought. No, but I'm saying that if it hadn't been for the drought, it would not have been as bad. Maybe not as bad. I it would still be have been a problem, but I don't think yeah. it would have been as bad if this if it hadn't been so dry that the crops failed. Yeah, think about these people. They they lived through the depression. Mhm. They Lived through World War Two. Some of them World War One as well. Yeah, World War One. And they're still being affected by this in the fifties. Yeah, if they were from yeah, Oklahoma, you're that you got to be hard. I, I I would imagine it makes you tough, a little bit of a hard wood, person. Tough yeah. as woodpecker lips. Yeah, and it's interesting. You hear people talk about like their. Um, their parents or their grandparents that kind of grew up during the Depression, a lot of them were not, uh, you know, they were very, um, I don't want to sound like all touchy-feely, but like emotionally closed off and like very hard. You are much more touchy-feely than I am. I know, but like emotionally just very hard, like stoic kind of people that didn't show a lot of emotion, didn't show a lot of love and so on and so forth. They had a Can hard you life. blame them? Yeah, that's they what I'm saying. Like, I understand why they get that, um, you know, the older generation kind of gets that label, I guess, for lack of a better term, stuck on them. Well, those, and that stereotype. Those folks now are well up into their 90s. Yeah. Yeah. So, Dust Bowl's over, and now we can look back in hindsight. After a lot of data analysis, 
The, the casual mechanism for the droughts can be linked to, believe it or not, ocean temperatures and anomalies. Specifically, what? yeah. The, I mean, this is the science, one of the scientific okay. reasons. So, you know, we, we had the social policies. Mm-hmm. We had the farmers doing the physical stuff. But this also comes back to the Atlantic Ocean sea surface temperatures appear to have been an indirect effect on the general atmospheric circulation while the Pacific sea surface temperatures seem to have the most direct influence. So it was the heating and cooling of, of our two oceans that caused the drought. Okay. Uh, that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I, mean, I don't understand I it. I mean, right now, a lot of people are concerned about global warming. Mm-hmm. So again, I would like to say to those people, you know, I'm, I'm a firm believer in climate change. I don't see that you... I don't see how you can deny climate change. It's very obviously happening. I don't, I'm not smart enough to know whether it's entirely man man caused or. Yeah, well, that's the debate. A right. lot, a lot of scientists will say yeah. it's because of man. And a I'm, lot of scientists say it's I'm a not, natural occurrence. I'm not going to take a side on that because I'm not smart enough to understand what I, what they're talking about. But I, you can, any idiot can look and see that, you know, we're having more tornadoes and the atmosphere and the climate of at least in America and at least in the Midwest, what I can see with my own eyes is changing. So those people who are saying, you know, going on and on about climate change, again, just like the a pandemic, we've been here before. We have been here before. We have affected or experienced the effects of climate change before and it led to the dust bowl i mean it's not i i wish i could say we, we had good effects of climate change but that's not what i'm saying well, but we you we, certainly we, took a roundabout way to get there <laughs> but we've been here before this is not new so all of it's this is i feel like it's well, you know, it like the last i don't know 10 years maybe five years is just a case of history repeating itself yeah i mean right now with the the type of climate change we're happening happening right now with, here in the yeah. world is this making an effect someplace else? Right, it's like that and, butterfly effect. Of- and what's interesting, have you seen the radar, the the satellite images since everyone's been quarantined and traffic has stopped? Have you seen the satellite images of where the pollution and stuff? Is? I have. Yeah, it's the the whole thing's amazing. Yeah, and that's why I I really don't want to go on record as as stating a belief or a claim because, well, I will. I, I think it's a combination, honestly. I think it's a combination of natural and, and man-made effects of, um, I don't think anything is really ever 100%. Nothing in the world is ever 100%. Trying to bring this back around to the Dust Bowl, and this is prime example. Mm-hmm. There were man-made cause and effect of this and there were natural occurring a cause Absolutely. cause and effects that made the dust bowl. Yep. So in in many regions more than 75% of the topsoil was blown away by the end of the 1930s. Wow. Aside from the short-term economic consequences caused by the erosion, there were severe long-term economic consequences caused by, by the dust bowl. Counties that experienced the most significant levels of erosion had a greater decline in agricultural land values. The economic effects persisted in part because the farmers' failure to switch to more appropriate crops for the highly eroded areas. And again, that's a man-made cause and effect for this. Because the amount of topsoil had been reduced, it would have been more productive to shift to crops from wheat to animals and hay. During the Depression... And at least through the 1950s, there were limited relative adjustment of farmland away from activities that became less productive and more eroded counties. And this kind of reminds me of what Mr. Davidson was was talking about as, um, you know, he said the old timers didn't want to change what they were doing. And, well, and they, because they didn't know. Right. And so this kind of reminds me of that, you know, the farmers didn't want to switch to more appropriate crops because they thought, you know, it's... It's that logical fallacy again of, okay, it's raining, the drought is over, now it's going to work. Yeah, but then scientists yeah. and experts got involved 
and it evolved to where we are right now. Yep. At least out there. <laughs> so some of the failure to shift to more productive agricultural products may be related to the ignorance about the benefits of changing land use. And when I say ignorance, I don't mean that is like you're ignorant. Yeah, not a derogatory thing. Like, like yeah, a not, genuine, not, you didn't know. You didn't know, yeah. I, there's, is there a better word then? No. Okay. Um, a second explanation is a lack of availability of credit caused by the high rate of failure of banks in the plain states. Because the banks failed in the Dust Bowl region at a higher rate than elsewhere, farmers could not get the credit they needed to buy capital to shift crop production. Mm. Again, there are just so many layers like of this onion to peel cycle. back. It's not just there was a drought and we had dust storms. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's so much more complicated. In addition, profit margins in either animals or hay were, were still minimal because of all this. And farmers had little incentive to change their crops because they just couldn't make any money off of it. Yeah. So like so many things, I think it's too easy to see the surface level and there's not one cause. It's complicated. Just the story of this Dust Bowl involved government policies, ignorant beliefs, natural occurring weather phenomena, and poor practices. And it all adds up in the end. Yeah. And I mean, it's, you know, you can armchair quarterback all these years later, you know, almost a hundred years later, 90 years, whatever. And, but really ultimately you did that math in your head. I did. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, you just gotta, I feel so bad for these people. Like you can point fingers and say, well, you should have done this and you should have done that. But again, and that's exactly what's happening right now. Again, it's 90 years later and you know, who knows you want to talk about contemporary stuff that's going on now, who knows 90, a hundred years from now are, are, you know, the people that are going to come after us are going to look back at us and say, well, you should have done this and you should have done that. Well, we you know, know better now. You know what? We did a, a pandemic <laughs> in 1918 and we yes. are pulling a lot of lessons we learned are. from 1918. That's true. Yeah. And so we, maybe we can so, learn from history? So forget you, future people that are saying that we could have done better. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I'll be the first to admit, when all this, we started shutting down and we started worrying about all this, I watched a lot of the news. Mm -hmm. But at the time, and here's what I've noticed. At that time, a lot of the news was news. Yeah. It was, this is happening, this is happening, this is happening. Now, as we're getting close to, we, we see that light at the end of the tunnel. Certainly not over, but I've stopped watching the news because anymore it's just the talking heads. It's turning. Mm -hmm. it's, right now, it's all political. It's all the, the speculation of one person will be an expert and claim they're an expert, and they'll come out. This started here. Another person, no, absolutely not. We've this talked started, about this earlier. This started here. We but, may do a special show just on oh. conspiracy theories of COVID. Yes. Uh, yeah. So if you, um, yeah, we were talking about this earlier about and now it's basically an echo chamber. Whether you believe that if you step foot out your one foot out your door, you're going to end up killing your granny. Or if you're at the opposite end of the spectrum and you believe that it's all made up and it's not that bad what the you can find stuff out there to support your position and that's probably what you're going to be listening to it's an thank, echo chamber now thank goodness for facebook oh my goodness what would we do without the armchair that's epidemiologist where get, that's where i get all my news is from facebook absolutely anymore. Yeah. that's the best news source um but yeah steve mentioned uh possibly um i would really because I, I love i love a good conspiracy theory uh, so if you know of, we might do, it probably will just be like a mini episode, uh, just kind of a bonus special kind of thing. If you know of any really good, like way out there conspiracy theories about COVID, write to us at a lost hour at gmail.com. And we, we would love to hear, I've heard some of them already I'm not and I don't want to go into it, but okay. Sorry. You mentioned it. Okay. Well, yeah. All right. Sorry. Okay. Go ahead. So <laughs> back to the dust bowl. Okay. <laughs> The effects of this 
of the Dust Bowl have been felt many, many, many years after the Dust Bowl was over. It changed our country physically mm-hmm. and socially, just like the COVID is doing right now. Hopefully, we learned lessons and we don't repeat our history. Okay, Kim. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I don't know what lessons necessarily. Um, I guess maybe lessons on drought and and uh, crop rotation. Crop and, rotation. Um, I don't. I guess what I'm saying is repeating history. I can't imagine but bank anything policies. like this. Yeah, that's true. Uh, which then that makes me think of like the housing crash and stuff and that happened years back that we need to learn. I don't know. There's a lot to unpack here. Life is complicated. Uh, it I really mean, is. You can go through, you, we can lead our life and be as simple as we can be. But I think we just have to be aware that there's a lot of complicated things going on in the, the world. Outside world is always going to encroach on your simplicity, no matter how much you don't want it to. So just do the best you can. So I think this is going to end our episode on the Dust Bowl. I think we already let the cat out of the bag. Next week, I think we're going to talk about the Great Depression, which there Man, may be. Man, we're some- just. Can we do a happy episode after that? Because we. <laughs> It's been, a, it's been well, a couple of... The next sequence would lead us into the 1940s, which would be World War II. Uh, maybe we'll take a break from history for yeah, a may, bit. I think it's time we interview somebody. Yeah. So if you want to be on the show, let us know. Okay. We'll, we'll get you on. Um, all right. So if you want to get in touch with us, I think it's been a little bit of a shorter show today, but that's okay. No? No? Okay. Um, if you want to get in touch with us, like I said, send me your coronavirus theories. Uh, your cra- Don't make them up. But if you've heard anything... <laughs> Don't make up your own conspiracy theory. But if you've heard an existing one, send it to me at alosthour at gmail.com. Um, you can also find us on Twitter at alosthour, and you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at an hour of your life. If we do that special episode, I promise to wear a tinfoil hat. I have a picture of his. He has one. He has a tinfoil hat, and I have a picture of it, and we'll use it for that episode. What, what was my conspiracy theory? Oh, I don't even know. Oh, well. <laughs> There's been so many. It wasn't real. Yeah. We love a good conspiracy theory, so please send them our way. Or if you just have any other... I There is a Facebook page about kind of um, medical weird things that I follow. So if you know of any crazy pages like that, send them my way because I'm always looking for something fun like that. All right, Kim. So here we are. It's Saturday night. We have gone another week. <sighs> We are still healthy. Hopefully, you and your family and your loved ones and friends are still healthy out there. It's not over yet. It's just, I think most people say we have flattened the curve. Yes. And it's going to start to go down. The virus is still going to go out there. Mm -hmm. And these smart people that we're talking about hopefully can figure out a way to bring us back, bring the country, bring the world back to where we can start working again mm-hmm. and people can start earning a living, paying their bills, buying food. I, I just see a lot of amazing good things going on out there with people taking care of each other right now. It's like Mr. Rogers said, look for the helpers and there's plenty of them out there. So um, if you know what, that's another thing. Maybe we can do a whole episode. If you know of someone that is doing good, in the community and you want to give them a shout out, send them our way. So send me their information, uh, send us the story. You know, if somebody is making masks and distributing them to you, um, at a hospital or if somebody has, uh, bought pizza for you and had it delivered to your house just cause you can't get out or just whatever kind of nice things have been done that you know about, send them our way. All right, Kim, let's get out of here tonight. All right. Okay, so how do you get hold of us? Again, you can email us at alosthour at gmail.com, uh, Twitter, a lost hour, Facebook and Instagram, an hour of your life. Go ahead, share us. Please. Please, share uh, what's going on. And from our beautiful studios in Beaver Creek, Ohio. Thanks for spending an hour of your life with us.
Lots of sources this week, including PBS, the American Experience, FDR, and the New Deal response to an environmental catastrophe from the Roosevelt Institute, about the Dust Bowl from the English Department at the University of Illinois, Dust Bowl migration from the University of California at Davis, Great Okie migration from the Smithsonian American Hist- Art Museum. Merle Haggard, I'm an Okie from Muskogee. Okie migrations from the Oklahoma Historical Society. What we learn from the Dust Bowl, lessons in science, policy, and adaptation from population and environment, the Dust Bowl from the Library of Congress, Dust Bowl ballads from Woody Guthrie from the Smithsonian Folkways Recordings, the Dust Bowl from Ken Burns PBS, and of course, good old Wikipedia. Thanks, stay safe.